This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History. And we have a mixed bag of reports for January this particular edition. We're going to top and tail it with reports from the test down under in Australia from 1933 and starting with Howard Marshall's report in the Daily Telegraph on the 17th of January of that year. The latest development in the series of incidents which has marred the third test match at Adelaide is the news that members of the Australian Board of Control have been officially asked their opinion on the leg theory tactics by the English bowlers. There is nothing new in the leg theory as we know it and F.R. Foster exploited it many years ago in Australia. It simply means bowling at the leg stumps with a ring of fielders close in on the leg side, a familiar method of attack to which no reasonable exception can be taken. It is true that when a bowler adopts it, a certain proportion of his deliveries must be directed at the batsman who naturally moves across his wicket in playing strokes on the leg side. The Australian critics, however, place a new interpretation on English leg theory tactics. They maintain, apparently, that the English boulders, and Larwood in particular, are deliberately aiming not at the leg stump, but at the batsman's body. We may argue, though we do not complain about it, that when Gregory and MacDonald were over here with the Australians, they bumped the ball alarmingly. But there is a distinction. Gregory and MacDonald were bowling to four slips, whereas Larwood has four short legs. And there is no denying the fact that Larwood, who does not bump the ball but causes it to rise breast high, must be a dangerous bowler when he employs these tactics. An unfortunate incident marred today's play. Oldfield was accidentally hit on the temple by a fast ball from Larwood and had to retire. X-ray examination of the injury shows a linear fracture of the right frontal bone involving the outer table only. Well, we will return to the test match in Australia later on. But first for a report from 1537 to 38 of Cromwell's agents reporting on the progress of the English Reformation. John London, Roger Townsend, Richard Layton and Geoffrey Chamber wrote the following. This is a report that was uh, compiled for Thomas Com- Cromwell, Henry VIII's Lord Privy Seal, who was largely responsible for establishing the Reformation in England. In my most humble manner, I have me commended unto your good lordship, ascertaining the same, that I have pulled down the image of Our Lady at Caversham, whereunto was great pilgrimage. The image is plated over with silver, and I have put it in a chest, fast locked and nailed up, and by the next barge that cometh from Reading to London, it shall be brought to your lordship. I have also pulled down the place she stood in, with all other ceremonies, as light shrouds, crosses and images of wax hanging about the chapel, and have defaced the same thoroughly in eschewing of any further resort thither. This chapel did belong to Notley Abbey, and there always was a canon of that monastery which was called the Warden of Caversham, and he sung in this chapel, and had the offerings for his living. He was accustomed to show many pretty relics, among the which were, as he made report, the holy dagger that killed King Henry, and the holy knife that killed St Edward. 
all these with many other, with the coats of this image, her cap and hair, my servant shall bring unto your lordship this week. With the surrender of the friars under their convent seal and their seal also. I have sent the canon home again to Notley and have made fast the doors to the chapel, which is thoroughly well covered with lead. And if it be your lordship's pleasure, I shall see it made sure to the king's grace's use. And if it be not so ordered, the chapel standeth so wildly that the lead will be stolen by night, as I was served at the friars. For as soon as I had taken the friars' surrender, the multitude of the poverty of the town resorted thither, and all things that might be had they stole away, insomuch that they had conveyed the very clappers of the bells. And saving that Mr. Fatchel, which made me great cheer at his house, and the mayor did assist me, they would have made no little spoil. At Caversham is a proper lodging where the canon lay, with a fair garden and an orchard, meet to be bestowed upon some friend of your lordship's in these parts. Please it be, your good lordship, to be advertised that there was a poor woman of Wells beside Walsingham that imagined a false tale of a miracle to be done by the image of Our Lady that was at Walsingham, since the same was brought from thence to London. And upon the trial thereof, by my examination from one person to another, to the number of six persons, and at last came to hear that she was the reporter thereof, and to be the very author of the same, so far forth as my conscience of perceiving could lead me, I committed her therefore to the ward of the constable at Walsingham. The next day after, being market day, there I caused her to be set in stocks in the morning and about nine of the clock, when the said market was fullest of people, with a paper set about her head, written with these words upon the same, a reporter of false tales, was set in a cart and so carried about the market stead and other streets in the town, staying in diverse places where most people assembled, young people and boys of the town casting snowballs at her. This done and executed was brought to the stocks again and there set till the market was ended. This was her penance, for I knew no law otherwise to punish her but by discretion, trusting it shall be a warning to other light persons in such wise to order themselves. Howbeit I cannot perceive, but she said image is not yet out of some of their heads. I thought it convenient to advertise your lordship of the truth of this matter. The abbot of Langdon passeth all other that ever I knew in profound bawdry, the drunkenness knave living. All his canons be even as he is, not one spark of virtue among them, arrant, bawdy knaves, every man. The abbot caused his chaplain to take a whore and instigate him to it, brought her up to his own chapter, took one of his feather beds off his own bed and made his chaplain's bed in the inner chamber within him and there caused him to go to bed with this whore that the abbot had provided for him. To rehearse you the whole story, it were long and too abominable to hear. The house is in utter decay and will shortly fall down. You must needs depose him and suddenly sequestrate the fruits and take an inventory of the goods. You can do no less of justice. My singular, good Lord, my duty remembered unto your Lordship, this shall be to advertise the same, that upon the defacing of the late monastery of Boxley, and plucking down the images of the same, I found in the image of the rood called the rood of grace, the which heretofore hath been had in great veneration of the people, 
certain engines and old wire with old rotten sticks in the back of the same that did cause the eyes of the same to move and stare in the head thereof like unto a living thing and also the nether lip in likewise to move as though it should speak which so famed was not a little strange to me and other that was present at the plucking down of the same whereupon the abbot hearing this brute did thither resort whom to my little wit and cunning with other of the old monks I did examine of their knowledge of the premises who did declare themselves to be ignorant of the same. We remain with a religious theme and move forward a hundred years to 1651 and George Fox, who was the founder of the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers, he visits Litchfield and writes thus. Thus being set at liberty again, I went on as before in the work of the Lord, and as I was walking in a close with several friends, I lifted up my head and espied three steeple-house spires, and they struck at my life. I asked them what place that was, and they said Litchfield. Immediately the word of the Lord came to me that thither I must go. So being come to the house we were going to, I bid friends that were with me to walk into the house from me, saying nothing to them whither I was to go. As soon as they were gone, I stepped away and went by my eye over hedge and ditch till I came within a mile of Litchfield, where in a great field there were shepherds keeping their sheep. I was commanded by the Lord of a sudden to untie my shoes and put them off. I stood still, for it was winter, and the word of the Lord was like a fire in me. So I put off my shoes and was commanded to give them to the shepherds and was to charge them to let no one have them except they paid for them. The poor shepherds trembled and were astonished. Then I walked on about a mile till I came into the town, and as soon as I was got within the town, the word of the Lord came to me again to cry, Woe unto the bloody city of Litchfield! So I went up and down the streets, crying with a loud voice, Woe to the bloody city of Litchfield! It being market day, I went into the marketplace, and to and fro in the several parts of it, and made stands, crying as before, Woe to the bloody city of Litchfield! And no one laid hands on me, but as I was thus crying through the streets, there seemed to me a channel of blood running down the streets, and the marketplace appeared like a pool of blood. And so at last some friends and friendly people came to me and said, Alack, George, where are thy shoes? I told them it was no matter. Now, when I had declared what was upon me and cleared myself, I came out of the town in peace and, returning to the shepherds, gave them some money and took my shoes of them again. But the fire of the Lord was so in my feet and all over me that I did not, did not matter to put on my shoes any more and was at a stand whether I should or no, till I felt freedom from the Lord so to do. And as at last I came to a ditch and washed my feet, I put on my shoes again. After this a deep consideration came upon me, why, or for what reason, I should be sent to cry against that city and call it the bloody city. For though the Parliament had the minister one while, and the king another, and much blood had been shed in the town during the wars between them, yet that could not be charged upon the town. But afterwards I came to understand that in the Emperor Diocletian's time a thousand Christians were martyred in Litchfield. And so I must go in my stockings through the channel of their blood and into the pool of their blood in the marketplace that I might raise up the memorial of the blood of those martyrs which had been shed above a thousand years before and lay cold in their streets. 
Well, now we change the story and move forward to the 20th century and World War II, and we're in Wales, in Llandaff, for bomb disposal, reported by John Miller in January of 1941. Travelling about the country on mining assignments, one was often asked for advice on unidentified objects which were found lying about after raids and were suspected of being dangerous. I had never seen a Molotov bread basket, which was an arrangement for dropping clusters of firebombs from an aeroplane, and was glad of the chance to add to my knowledge, so we stepped into a police car and drove off to Thlandaf. The policeman ushers us into the front garden of a small, semi-detached villa, one of a delightful little circle, with white walls and great tiled roofs. Under the porch, a baby was asleep in a pram. The policeman waved his hands towards the rosebed which edged the path. There, at full length, almost entirely buried in the soil, was lying one of the largest types of magnetic mines, badly damaged and in an exceedingly dangerous condition. We had everybody out from all the houses at once. Unfortunately, the fuse was underneath the mine and I had to make one of the cold-blooded calculations which are so common on these occasions. The houses, were, though charming, were worth perhaps £1,500 each and if they were completely destroyed, no harm would be done to the war effort. The mine, I could see, was a standard type and was not likely to yield any secrets. In other words, it was a case in the jargon of the service where damage could be accepted. It would be possible to request one of my officers to dig a hole under the mine, crawl in and work on it from underneath. Alternatively, I could call up a boiler and steam hose and request my friend to stand over the mine and dissolve the explosive filling with steam till so little was left that if it did go up, nobody would lose anything but a few windows. But either method was so dangerous that it would have only been justified if the mine had been lying in a vital spot and powerhouse, an important telephone exchange, a waterworks or something of that sort. I decided to trust to luck and an ordinary municipal steamroller. It is a cardinal principle of mining that you should carry out every possible process from a distance of 200 yards under cover. Certain operations have to be performed actually straddling the mine and these cannot be avoided but there is a surprising amount that can be done at the end of a 200 yard line. My plan of action was to make fast one end of a wire cable to a projection on the mine and the other to a steamroller and then very gently back the roller down the hill, heave the mine out of its hole and expose the fuse for attention. The joy about these operations is that everybody is keen to help. Everybody wants the mine cleared and I've never asked in vain for any piece of apparatus which was needed, however bizarre. The answer was always yes. A steamroller was immediately produced. There was an excellent driver in charge who grasped perfectly what he had to do and quite understood that there must be absolutely no jerk at any stage of the proceedings. We made fast the wire, took over cover in position from which we could watch and signalled the driver to let his roller slide slowly down the hill. The wire took the strain sweetly. The huge bulk of the mine heaved slowly up out of the rosebed when suddenly there was an appalling explosion. When the dust subsided, there was practically nothing left of the circle of houses. The curious thing was that the people were angry. They said that the thing had been lying there a week and if we had only left it alone, they could never have lost their property. And so we come back 
to January 1933 and the test match which lasted from the 13th to the 19th. This report by W.H. Ferguson. Although Douglas Jardine, the English captain, showed his hand to some extent in the second test match at Melbourne at the turn of the year, the actual eruption of the volcano occurred during the third test at Adelaide from the 13th to the 19th of January. I sensed the preparations for assault on Australia when everyone, bar those on official business, was banned from the ground during the MCC pre-match practices. This was destined to be an historic and sensational match, one of the most unpleasant exhibitions from many aspects that has been my misfortune to witness. I have no doubt in my mind that the Australian cricketers were terrified by Harold Larwood and his leg theory bowling, an attitude of mind fully justified by the events of the match. One batsman after another suffered physically as Larwood relentlessly set about the job allocated to him by Jardine. Bill Ponsford, who frequently turned his back on the ball, had dozens of bruises to emphasise the folly of such attempted evasive action. Bill Woodfall, never very quick on his feet, suffered even more and I was in full sympathy with his wife who feared for Woodfall's safety. It came as no surprise when, after receiving a severe blow on the chest from a Larwood delivery, Woodfall had to be taken to the dressing room. A very sick man. When Bert Oldfield, always a popular figure with spectators, had to be carried to the pavilion, knocked unconscious with a fast-rising ball, the indignation of spectators was at boiling point. Maurice Tate, who was not playing for England, told me, Bill, I'm getting out of here. Somebody is going to get seriously hurt and the people will start a riot. I felt sure some hotheads in the crowd would jump the rails and try to assault the English cricketers, but thank heaven it didn't come to that. Plum Warner, in an effort to do the right thing, looked into the Australian dressing room, which by this time resembled a casualty clearing station, and expressed his regret for the injuries caused by the tourist fast bowling. He received a snub which made front-page news all over the world when Woodfull told him, I don't want to speak to you, Mr Warner. There are two teams out there and one is playing cricket. If these tactics are persevered with, it may be better if I do not play the game. Good afternoon. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org.